So our next talk is the sanctuary metaphor, cleansing of the temple. And as we get into this talk, remember the landscape. Remember the, the larger story that's being told throughout history. In the beginning was God, and God is love. And the God of love began to create and build the universe. And as he built the universe, he built it on the laws upon which reality operate, an expression of his character of love, the most important being the law of love, other-centeredness. And then one day, sin was found or originated in Lucifer, who, who was perfect from the time God created him until rebellion was found in him. And he began to lie and lies believe, break the circle of love and trust and incite fear and selfishness. And God created earth, and Adam and Eve believed the lies, and, and God was not changed. God's law was not changed, but the condition of humankind was changed. And right there in Eden, after the, the fall of humankind, God promised that a Savior was coming. The, the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head. And the Old Testament is this battle between God working to bring salvation, to bring Jesus, our Savior, Satan working to oppose the plan and shut it down. And you see this back and forth through Scripture, through Old Testament, as the two forces are battling things out. But Satan could not stop Christ from coming, and Christ is born in Bethlehem. And Satan inspires evil men to try to kill the baby Jesus because if he can kill the baby Jesus, Jesus doesn't fulfill his mission. We talked about what Christ had to achieve. This also is evidence for those who think it was simply penal legal. We have infant, innocent, sinless baby Jesus on earth. And if the problem is simply that we need the blood of an innocent, sinless sacrifice to be shed to offer to God to pay the legal penalty for our sin, Jesus could have died as an infant, made the payment, gone back to heaven, we're done. It was not the problem. And Satan was trying to stop the plan. God intervened, kept Jesus alive as an infant. And then, of course, Jesus confronted Satan in the desert and was tempted in various ways, overcame, developed the perfect character, eliminates the infection of fear and selfishness that tormented and tempted him, and, and perfects humanity. He couldn't stop Christ from coming. He couldn't stop Christ from achieving his mission. Christ now ascends into heaven and begins to minister his victories into the lives of men. So Satan's strategy now is to work to obstruct the truth and the application of what Christ achieved into the hearts of men. And so he creates a false narrative, a false picture of God. Revelation actually refers to it as the synagogue of Satan. Rather than the spirit temple, you are this temple of the Holy Spirit. That when we take in the distortions about God and accept Satan's view, we become a synagogue of Satan. So, the sanctuary metaphor. God, and we're going to lay this out for you, prophesies because it says in Amos, he doesn't do anything without revealing to his servants the prophets. God revealed this whole controversy and this plan back and forth. And eventually God's plan to cleanse the, the spirit temple, to cleanse the characters of men, to cleanse the hearts and minds, to prepare people to be with him again where we can live eternally in his presence. That's the metaphor taught in the sanctuary service. All Bible metaphors point to one reality. They all point. Parables, illustrations, metaphors, object lessons, rituals, similes, they all point towards God's character and methods of love and his plan to heal and restore his universe. That's what they're all teaching. If there's no reality to which the metaphor points, it's no longer metaphor, it's fantasy. 
sadly, many things in Christianity are fantasy. They're symbolic things that are no longer connected to any reality or to some fraudulent idea that is literally fantasy. Our goal is to understand the symbolic meanings of the rituals, of the metaphors, of the symbols, so we can understand the reality of God's kingdom. There isn't any element in the Old Testament sanctuary service, not one element, that is meant to be taken literally. It's all symbolic of something larger. Hebrews 9, 9 and 10, and 10, 3 and 4, states that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Notice the the writer of Hebrews is is trying to take us out of symbol and ritual to reality. It's not about doing something in a ritualistic way. It's about changing the internal workings of the mind of human beings, healing hearts, cleansing consciences. They're only a matter of food and drink, of various ceremonial washings, external, outside the person, regulations applying to the time of the new order. But those sacrifices are annual reminders of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Impossible. Understand, much of Christianity doesn't understand this Bible truth. Much of Christianity thinks in Old Testament times sin was taken care of by the blood of animals. There was no taking care of sin by the blood of animals. This was ritual. This was symbolic. This was theater. This was acting out a larger reality. Everybody saved throughout human history is saved through Jesus Christ, whether they know that or not. Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Everyone is saved through the works of Jesus Christ, even if they don't realize fully that's what's happened. Understanding the theatrical nature, God provided Israel this entire teaching, not only to give them the prophetic writings and the writings of Moses, he gave them an illustration. He gave them an acted out theater to act out the plan of salvation. And there's multiple layers on this, and I'm not going to go into all of them. I have an entire uh, uh, DVD series on the symbols of the sanctuary. We're going to focus instead today on the annual feasts. And the annual feasts were theater to act out in a recurring cycle every year the plan of salvation, man's fall into sin, God's action to bring us back to our Edenic home where we fellowship with God in an earth made new. That's what's acted out in the seven feasts. The first feast of the annual cycle was Passover. And as soon as humanity fell into sin, God passed over their sin. Romans 3.25 says, He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Right there, we find that the inception of sin, God passes over and doesn't in any way allow punishment to come upon Adam and Eve for their sin. In other words, eternal death, because Jesus steps in its place and He passes over that because He's going to provide a plan to restore them instead. The time covered from, uh, by the Passover is from Adam's sin until Jesus' crucifixion, his victory at the cross. The entire time in human history is covered in that feast at that time. 
the unleavened bread. Immediately after the fall, not only does God pass over in grace, he immediately begins dispensing truth unmixed with error to nurture and to, and to bring us back to a knowledge of God. It was internalized, these truths that God is revealing through this entire time in Old Testament history, these truths about God that he's revealing is being internalized by people in sin. Thus, and maybe you've had the experience of taking in truths that are painful truths. Thus, it is represented by bitter herbs. This also represents the time of Adam from his fall to a Christ victory at the cross. Eating of the unleavened bread symbolizes the internalization of Jesus, the, the Word made flesh. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Internalizing Christ, the unleavened bread. The feast of first fruits, the first fruits are the representative of the victory over death. The sin condition has been cured. We are no longer on the, the pathway to eternal non-existence or death. And this is symbolized by because of God's Passover, because of the lamb that is slain, because of the internalization of the unleavened bread, we can be cured and we will actually live again uh, the victory of the first fruits. The wave sheaf represents Jesus, the ultimate first fruit, who was buried and rose again into sinless perfection. Those who arose with him on resurrection morning are the actual first fruits, the ones he took to heaven with him 2,000 years ago. And sometimes maybe they're represented in some of the revelatory um, visions in heaven where we see 24 elders sitting on thrones, etc. in heaven, maybe part of that first fruits that rose when Christ rose and went to heaven with him. The next is the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to apply and spread the victory of Christ, bringing forth a harvest of healed souls. This occurred after Christ's death on the cross as the benefits of his achievements were being dispensed into trusting human hearts. Symbolically spans the time of Pentecost, 33 to AD, all the way to the loud cry. Uh, the next is the Feast of Trumpets, a special message for the end time, prepare people to be unified or brought back into one with God. And this is to awaken people, to get them ready, to take an inventory, to prepare their hearts. God is coming again. Let's reunite with Him and be at one with Him. This is the late 18th and early 19th century. This is, uh, corresponds to the Great Awakening in, in uh, Christianity. Atonement, the Day of Atonement. This is reunification or at oneness with God, where we are brought from alienation back into oneness with God. The healing and restoration of Christ-like character within, setting into, settling into the truth so that you cannot be moved out of it or shaken out of it. This is from the mid-19th century up into the second coming of Christ. And then the final feast, uh, teaching this landscape of the controversy from man's fall into sin into our restoration into our Edenic new home on earth, the earth made new, is the Feast of Tabernacles. And after we have been restored to at one after our hearts, our minds, our characters have been cleansed, and, and we are like Him. For when He comes, we shall see Him face to face, for we shall be like Him. That is the atonement process, the finishing of that work, cleansing the spirit temple, because when He comes, we, we return 
and we tabernacle, he returns and we tabernacle with him again in an earth made new. And this is why in the Feast of Tabernacles they would make their little booze out of green briars or green branches and they would have this symbolic representation of an earth or Eden home made new. Let's talk about the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. And this is the time that we would find ourselves in if we, if we understand this, this historic timeline being taught in the theater, we would be in the time before our Eden home, which is the time of atonement or the time in which we are being brought back into unity or the time in which the tabernacle is being cleansed or the time in which we're being prepared to see Jesus face to face to live in our Eden home. This is that time. This was first started to be preached by a Baptist preacher named William Miller. He identified Daniel 8, 14, 2300 years or days and the sanctuary will be cleansed. And William Miller um, researched this out and, and I'm not going to go through all the, the processes about how he came to his conclusions, but he concluded that this prophecy of 2300 years until the cleansing of the sanctuary would end in 1844. And he began to preach that this prophecy would end in 1844 with the second coming of Christ and the earth was the sanctuary and the earth was going to be cleansed by the second coming of Christ. And this caused um, a uh, part of the great awakening and the gospel really spread and people turned the hearts of the Lord across all denominational groups who were involved in a real um, commitment to Christ. But October 22, 1844, Christ did not return and it's known as the Great Disappointment, and there was a great disillusionment, and many people felt, well, this was misinterpreted, this was, uh, this was not a godly movement, and yet, and most church, Christian denominations fell away from this idea and stopped teaching anything about the cleansing of the sanctuary. From that group of interdenominational believers, Baptists, Methodists, and other group, there was a group that stayed on the message and said, you know, okay, the Lord didn't come in 1844, but we felt the power of the Holy Spirit, the transformed lives, the love of God being, uh, being moved forward in, 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 uh, in real ways. And we can't believe that there, God wasn't leading us here. We must have misunderstood something. And so for the next you know, 19 years or so, they studied together uh, and eventually formed the Seventh-day Adventist Church which is the only church that continues to teach anything related to William Miller's prophecy of the cleansing of the sanctuary. After the great disappointment, um, they discovered, uh, these people that were studying together, eventually forming the Adventist church, they discovered that the service at the sanctuary in the Old Testament was a copy or shadow of that which is in heaven. And so they, they realized, hey, wait a second, William Miller's position was that the sanctuary was the earth, and the earth was going to be cleansed at the second coming, but we can't find that the sanctuary, the earth is ever referred to as the sanctuary in heaven, so then it must be this, this, uh, this sanctuary in heaven, not the earth, being cleansed. So a common SDA view of the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, which is often taught today of the cleansing of the sanctuary, is that 2300 years ended in 1844. Sanctuary is not the earth but a building in heaven. Christ entered the most holy place of this building in heaven in 1844. And at that time, he began to cleanse the sanctuary from the sins of the people. This required him to open record books and to investigate the record books and remove from the record books um, the uh, various repented of sins of the people who had committed them. All cases of the 
professed followers are reviewed and sins are either eliminated out of the record books or retained in the record books depending on whether they have asked for the blood of Jesus to be applied to them. God's judgment is vindicated through this process to show that he does things right and only really removes sins of those who have asked for, uh, for God to, to save them and to have repented from their sins. It, this period of time ends with human probation or it ends human probation and it culminates in the second coming of Christ. This is a common way within the Adventist church this idea is often taught. But notice the entire way this is taught is taught as a legal process. In other words, what law lens are they looking through? It's being taught through the idea that God's law functions like human law. And therefore, there is an investigation of actual physical records or books. There is legal accounting of historical deeds. There's judicial findings um, by a, a judicial magistrate. There's rendering of legal judgments against people or, or their accounts. There's removing from databases or record books um, the historical facts of history that would correspond to their sinful deeds. The legal view is all predicated on the single idea that God's law functions no differently than human law. Remember the designer law that we've been going over this entire weekend. God is creator. His laws are the laws upon which reality are built. The laws of health, the laws of physics, the law of thermodynamics, and the moral laws. Deviations or transgressing these laws are injurious or damaging to the people who do that. So what is the reality that's actually happening in the metaphor, that the metaphor of the cleansing sanctuary is trying to teach us? What is that reality? Well, what are the records in heaven? Let's see what that reality actually is. Are they parchments? Are they books? Are they some magnetic data recording systems? Well, what is recorded in the heavenly books or the heavenly records. What's actually recorded there? Daniel 12.1, at that time, Michael, the great prince you, who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Or Revelation 3.5, he who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. In Scripture, what does the name symbolize or represent? Character. What is recorded in the heavenly records? Or is the character, the individuality, the identity, and from our earlier talks, you could say the psyche, the software, the soul, the, what makes you uniquely you, your personhood is recorded there, your name. One of the founders of the SDA church who actually helped uh, develop this heavenly sanctuary doctrine wrote the following. Remember, your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven, as minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist. 
What do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern, Jesus Christ? Are you washing your robes of character and making them white in the blood of the Lamb? Do you notice there's several metaphors here, including the robe of righteousness? But the robe of righteousness is also a metaphor for your character. Remember, where did sin begin? Well, it began in heaven. But when Adam and Eve sinned, did God get changed? Did God's law get changed? Did the heart, mind, slash character of humankind get changed? So the plan of salvation is Christ working to restore in man his character. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So the spirit temple, the place where God dwells with his spirit, your hearts, my hearts, have been contaminated by sin, by fear, by selfishness, and it needs to be cleansed. And thus, our characters need to be washed metaphorically in the blood, the life of Christ, so it's no longer I that live, that Christ lives in me. So at death, remember from our earlier talk, the body returns to dust, the spirit, life energy returns to God who gave it, and what about the soul, the psyche, the individuality, where does that go? To the heavenly records. That's where your name will be found. That's where your soul, your psyche, your individuality is stored, waiting for Christ to return, and he brings with him those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, blood in the sanctuary is another metaphor. Just as we talked earlier, when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me, he is not talking red corpuscles or human flesh. It's metaphor. Blood in the sanctuary is metaphor. If you wanted a way to symbolically, or even at this point in time, literally record every person as their unique self, couldn't you do that with their blood? Because with their blood, you get their DNA. And their DNA is data that uniquely records them. And so the blood going into the sanctuary is a metaphor of saying, when you confess your sins on the head of the lamb, and the lamb is slain, he becomes your representative, and the blood is taken into the sanctuary, symbolically transferring your identity through your Savior, who will take you back to God into the sanctuary. Your name is now written in heaven. Thus the metaphor of taking the blood in the sanctuary um, represents the recorded individualities or souls or psyches or characters of people. So sin offerings all year long, not the Day of Atonement now, all year long, Israelites committing sin, come to the sanctuary, confess sin over the head of an animal, confess that sin, it's carried into the sanctuary, and symbolically placing their trust in Jesus the Lamb, their lives are symbolically transferred into the sanctuary, the life is in the blood, if you remember Leviticus 17.11. But those who trust Jesus are still sinners. When we put our life in Christ, we still have problems. We still have struggles. We still have victories. We've surrendered our hearts to Him, but we haven't been perfected yet. Thus, there's sinfulness, and those like the thief on the cross who died trusting Christ. He has now had His name written in the book, the Lamb's Book of Life. But He didn't overcome every uh, shortcoming in His life. His name is written there, but His sinfulness, so to speak, which is written still in his character, needs to be purged or removed. So the sinfulness was symbolically removed on the Day of Atonement. That's the day of perfecting or removing or eliminating all the residual defects to prepare all the sinners through time to be able to stand in God's presence. Blood 
of the repentant sinner. Uh, this, is, this is why, if you've ever read in the Old Testament sanctuary, it could be confusing. Why would the blood of the sin offering contaminate the sanctuary, but the blood of the atoning offering would cleanse the sanctuary? Because the blood of the sin offering represents the individualities, the lives, the personhoods of all those who trust in Jesus and have surrendered their lives to Him, but they, ha- they didn't die in perfect holiness. They died with their still struggles not yet eliminated. But Christ lived a perfect sinless life and overcame, and His blood is the blood that actually cleanses. That's metaphor. His life, as it comes into our hearts and minds, purges or renews us from fear and selfishness into Christ-likeness. When Jesus returns and all the saints are resurrected, I want you to think this through with me now. You had your reasoning powers. Are the resurrected saints, the saved people, resurrected sinful or sinless? There was about seven of you that answered that. No, they're resurrected sinless, into sinless perfection, yes or no? Did any person who's trusted Jesus so far in human history, other than Christ himself, our Savior, die in sinless perfection? What would that mean then? If they didn't die in sinless perfection, how are they rising in sinless perfection? Does something need to happen in them, in their souls, in their identities, in their characters, in their individualities before resurrection to perfect or eliminate any residual defects they still struggle with at the time of their death? If they're going to rise in sinless perfection. So... Will the thief on the cross who accepted Jesus as a Savior arise with the heart attitude of a thief? Will Martin Luther, who was a devout anti-Semite, you all know that, right? Will he rise hating the Jews? Then did some, but, but didn't he die with that problem still in his heart? So will something have to happen in him before he rises, so when he arises, he no longer has that residual defect. His sanctuary is being cleansed. And is being cleansed by the work of Christ in the hearts and minds of all who have trusted him. The record books where their individualities, names are stored, their characters are opened. And Christ, the heavenly high priest, applies his perfection to all who trust him. So what is the cleansing of the sanctuary? The final removal of all the defects from the individualities, the stored data sets, if you will, the psyches, the souls of all who have trusted in Jesus before he returns. So that when they arise, they arise in sinless perfection. Why wait until 1844? Why wait until 1844? For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. We're in a war. The weapons we use, they're not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. We're in a war. Well, what kind of war are we in? Is it a war? When you're in a war like this, is this a war of physical might and power? If you're in a war of arguments, pretensions, knowledge, and thoughts, where is it being fought? And Satan is the father of... Word of lies have power in your mind and heart, and the truth will set you free. 
Again, warring in your heart and mind. This is where the war is going on. So at the same time, notice Daniel is prophesying about what's going to transpire. I beheld the same little horn power, the horn power made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High God. What does this mean? What kind of war? How was the little horn warring? Many people, imperial law model, well, he sent out his crusades, he sent out his soldiers, he burned people at the stake, and make, they make it very physical. Sure, that stuff happened, but that wasn't the war. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified. Stephen was stoned. Did they win or lose the war? You see, the, the, the devil cannot win the war with physical might and power. He can't win the war for your soul. Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body. By, he can't win the war for your soul by physical means. He can only win the war for your soul by spiritual means, getting you to believe lies about God that keep you from trusting him. So he's making war, and he seems to be prevailing until the Ancient of Days comes and judgment was given. Now, many people read that, and they read it through a human law model, and they hear the word judgment, and judgment means that somebody is sitting in, in a magistrate seat, and they're reviewing something, and they're making a judgment, and they're ruling. How about if I replace the word judgment with a synonym, and discernment was given to the saints? Understand, this means to, the, the actual Hebrew here to, was given means to impart. Look it up. It means to impart. Judgment was imparted to the saints. Why? Because they're in a war with the father of lies who's filling their minds with distortions and they can't figure things out and they're losing the war until God gives them discernment, gives them judgment, gives them the ability to differentiate. In Thessalonians, Paul picks up on the same theme from Daniel. Notice this. This is, this is going to bring some pieces together. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come, talking about the second coming, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that's the little horn, the man of lawlessness is the same, is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship so that he, notice what, what he does, sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, Paul writes this around 60 AD. Christ was resurrected about 30 years before this. He ascended into heaven about 30 years before this. Is Paul saying 30 years after Christ's ascension into heaven that this little power, this, this law, man of lawlessness is going to come, he's going to ride up into heaven, knock Jesus off his throne in heaven and begin reigning. Is that what he's saying? He is not saying that. He is saying, though, there's a lawless man coming, one who, and what, what does lawless mean? Certainly it's selfish, that's right. But think through what I've been teaching you this weekend. One who denies God's law. One who operates outside of, transgresses. He is out of harmony with the law. He's lawless. He's no longer operating on love. He's not operating on truth. He's not operating on liberty. He is operating on lies, fear, coercion, selfishness. He's lawless. And this man is going to come, this lawless man, and he's doomed to destruction. Why is he doomed to destruction? Because it'd be like saying that person who ties a plastic bag around their head. They're doomed to death. That's what happens when you're lawless and outside the law of life. He's doomed. 
But he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God, sets himself up in God's temple. This is not in heaven. What temple would he be setting himself up in? The spirit temple. So God is saying through his inspired penman that there is a power that is going to come that is going to contaminate the spirit temple. In fact, he's going to distort our view of God so deeply that people will come to think of God to be like this, this, this other being, this lawless one, and he will be set up in our temples. So the temple is the spirit temple. How did Satan set himself up in God's temple? How did he do it? By changing how we view God's law from design to imposed. Daniel 7, that little horn power, it actually says he will seek to change times and laws. Seek to get us to change how we view God's law from design to imperial. And by presenting God as a dictator, cosmic executioner, the source of pain, suffering, and death, God's the one who's offended and wrathful and will punish you. We must give him the human sacrifice, the blood of a human sacrifice, in order for him not to kill us. Imperialism. The world goes into an age of darkness, the dark ages. And God's ability to cleanse his people is being obstructed because he cleanses us with the spirit of truth and love. If the spirit temple is the one defiled, how is it cleansed? Notice what Malachi says. Three, one through three. This is referring to the same process as Daniel 8, 14, by the way. Cleansing of the sanctuary. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. What do those things do? They cleanse, they refine, they purify. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now notice what gets purified at this time of cleansing. He will purify the Levites and make them like gold and silver. This cleansing process that is to happen is to happen in the hearts and minds of those who trust God to prepare us to meet him, to see him face to face, for we shall be like him. So who are the Levites? The priesthood of believers. So when is the the temple cleansed? The significance of 1844. Since Adam's fall, God has been working to restore humanity to trust in himself. In Old Testament times, God would work to keep open avenue for Messiah. Satan was working to try and stop it. Jesus came to earth, and after he arrived at earth, Satan's no longer trying to close the avenue. He's here. He's trying to either kill Jesus before he can complete his mission or corrupt Jesus so he won't complete his mission. But Jesus completes his mission and restores the human species back to perfection in his own experience as a human being. After Jesus achieved the remedy, he ascends into heaven, sends the Holy Spirit to begin to apply what he achieved in the hearts and minds of people to prepare us to dwell with him. But Satan counterattacks by infecting humankind. This is the man of lawlessness setting himself up in God's temple by infecting humankind with this idea that God's law functions like human law. And the whole world now is worshiping a cosmic dictator that operates the universe in Satan's model. God was still working to win people to trust all through history, but defects were not fully removed in those who did trust God. Since 1844, Christ has been opening the records where names are stored, individualities, personhoods, so to speak, their souls, removing all residual defects. He is applying the template of his perfect character, purifying them so that when he arises, they will be sinless and perfect. 
He is also working in the lives of the living, you and me. He's working in our lives right now to achieve his healing in all who trust him, which requires that we reject the lies about him, eliminate them from our, our mind, including the imposed law lie. Notice the fifth seal of Revelation. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, we were in the sanctuary, the souls, that's the individualities, of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge, notice we're at judgment time, the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then, then at that time, each of them was given a white robe, symbolic of the cleansing of their character at that time. And they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed was complete. The cleansing of the living saints. Why wait until 1844? Because Jesus needs to not only perfect the sleeping saints, but also the living saints. And that requires those of us alive on earth to understand the truth about God sufficiently to expunge the lies that have been told and so widely accepted and to experience the transformation of our hearts and minds. And thus, Revelation has a prophecy for this time. Fear God and give glory to Him. So fear God. Be in awe. Be in admiration. This is not be in terror or dread. This is to be overwhelmed with His beauty and give Him glory. That means to reveal Him in the way you live your life because the hour in human history has come. The hour of His judgment has come. The hour in human history has come for people to finally make a right judgment about God and stop viewing Him as an imperial dictator and instead worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and all that in them is. Worship our creator, our designer, and our healer. Key learning points. The plan of salvation is the plan to heal sinners to sinlessness. Christ came as the second Adam to reveal truth and to procure the remedy. In his person, the species human, the human race was saved in the person of Jesus Christ, put right, justified with God. As long as we have one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. Because of Jesus' perfection as a real human, the human species was permanently and forever saved. Jesus directs now all the agencies of heaven for the application of his victory into all who will trust him to save as many specimens as are willing to cooperate. Those who trust, he transforms into his likeness. We become partakers of the divine nature, conformed to the likeness of Jesus, so that when he comes, we will see him face to face, for we shall be like him. Time for a roundtable discussion.